Hi everyone, I'm Diana Mustak, a freelance journalist from Kuala Lumpur. Now, every so often, heartwarming stories emerge of educators and students alike overcoming hurdles in order for learning to continue. Whether that's a teacher traveling over 100 kilometers daily to reach students in rural areas, or a student who spent the night in a tree for better internet connection to sit for her exams. Stories like these tend to take off on social media because they represent a sense of triumph over adversity. But on the flip side, they also represent a societal failure to ensure access to education for all, a problem that has only been made worse by COVID-19. In Malaysia, students have mostly been learning online since the onset of the pandemic, and online learning seems likely to continue through August before a gradual reopening of schools. For many students without access to online classes, this has meant falling behind in lessons. A survey by the Ministry of Education with almost 900,000 student respondents suggests that 37% of students do not have devices for home learning. And even those that do may have to share with others in the home. So while online learning may be an inconvenience to some, it is a true barrier to education for many, especially those who come from low-income families. On this episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, I speak to Mazliza Mahmoud, a teacher, and Chan Sun Seng, the CEO of Teach from Malaysia. We talk about the other alternatives available when a pandemic means in-person learning could put lives at risk, and what help has been given to support students in need during this time. If you enjoy what we're doing, please do support New Narrative's work by becoming a member of New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Memberships start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just $1 a week. Or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. Now here's the interview. Good morning. Thanks so much to you both for joining us today. Um, perhaps let's start with you, Mazliza. Tell me a little bit about yourself. Where do you teach? And maybe a little bit about what your role is at the school. Hi, good morning. I'm Mazliza. I'm an English language teacher here in a public secondary school. I have been teaching English uh, for 28 years. I'm in a school right in central KL. So, yeah. So that kind of leads in nicely to my next question, right? Which is that... Um, I think a lot of times when we think about students who need support for online learning, we think about this as a problem for students and families who are in, you know, more rural areas. But like you said, you work right here in KL. And I mean, students at your school have needed considerable support in getting access to the internet. So I guess, could you describe the demographics of your school students? Okay, even though I'm right in the middle of KL and the address is quite an exclusive address, only about 50% of the students here come from um, the, not even middle class, you know, because they live in the government quarters around this area. Yeah, and the other maybe like 40% come from the lower income bracket, yeah. And only about 10% come from the affluent neighborhood of this area. Right. So it's sort of considered to be like a posh area, but it also serves a lot of kind of like communities that people don't really think of. Yeah, yeah. The school is situated. It's in a very posh area. But the students who come to this school are mainly like uh, children of government servants. And these are the government servants who are the, the administration group, you know, 
the clerks and so forth. They stay in the quarters, the government quarters around the area. And then we have more than 40% actually come from the squatters. The immigrants, those are the ones who have problems, I suppose, um, learning online. So, I mean, we've been doing online learning for a while now, right? But when did you first realize that, you know, many of your students needed more support to do online learning? What was the first indicator for you? Okay, the problem is we have a set timetable. So, and then the education department requires the school to make sure you um, comply with like how many hours of learning a day. So, my principle, she's a stickler when it comes to rules and regulations. We had to stick to that, you know, how many hours of online learning. And, and you, you get students by the third session or fourth session, they just don't turn up. Because we have, we key in the attendance for every class that comes in, right? So you can compare, like, oh, how come he was in my class, but he's not in this person's class and so forth. And when you ask around and you get, students saying that by the end of the day, their data would have finished or they would have to pass their gadget to their other siblings who also wanted to join class and all that. So, yeah, that's when that's when I realized not everybody can sit from 8. It's literally from 8 to 12, you know, of Google Meet. And that's a lot of data required, you know. Right. So they would have to share devices with siblings and things like that. And, and so what was your or your school's first response? How, how did you step in to help? Actually, the teachers have been forking out their own money to help the students who really needed help. But alternatively, we had like offline work given as well. So we tell them, it's okay, you know, um, you can't, then we will post work on the uh, WhatsApp group, on the Google Classroom and so forth. And for those who really, really can't afford and who have been like struggling, we actually produce the hard copy uh, work, the modules, we call the modules, and um, they can collect it from the school. And um, when, when you say the teachers forked out their own money, what kind of support were they usually giving? Oh, just to buy extra data for the kids because most of them use prepaid. They, they don't have post, of course, or Wi-Fi for that matter. So, you know, so this, the teachers will buy the prepaid credits for them. Right. Okay, so now turning to you, Sinsing, you work at Teach for Malaysia, uh, an organization that aims to empower young children through education. In your opinion, how widespread is this digital divide problem that Mazliza is describing throughout Malaysia? Yeah, I mean, Mazliza's just given us a picture of what it's like in urban Malaysia, right, in, in the heart of KL. And you can imagine that that uh, becomes even more challenging as you go out across the country. So the Ministry of Education did a survey last year that at the time of this survey indicated something like 37% of students not having access to a device or connectivity. And um, if you calculate that against the almost 5 million students in Malaysia, that's more than 1.5 million students. But I heard more recently that the number looks closer to something like 3.2 million students without access to a device or connectivity. And if you can imagine in rural areas in Malaysia, you only connect to a 4G connection about 44% of the time that you're connected. So that means you may be able to like move around and find a 4G connection, but it would be very unstable. So you can imagine for 
students who are in rural parts of the country, even if they had a device, they would not be able to connect uh, to the internet or the, the type or the strength of the internet connection that they would be able to connect to would be very, very weak. So they would not be able to access video conferencing platforms like Google Meet, for example, on a stable basis. Yeah. And the other thing which um, Masliza alluded to was the fact that people were sharing devices and things like that. Um, but also a lot of students have um, home environments. I mean, the school is kind of like a sacred space in that way where when you are in the school, it's a dedicated environment for you to learn. But at home, it, you, you know, you might have other responsibilities or or just a, a home environment that's not conducive to learning. Um, how widespread is that problem? Yeah, I mean, I think that what was seen across last year, at least, was that the domestic violence rates at home uh, were increasing, right? And I think that you can imagine that if families are stuck at home, there's the potential for further social issues to arise uh, within the home. And school, obviously, you know, school serves primarily the function to help kids learn, but it, it does so much more than just serve uh, kids' learning needs. And I think that the role of the teacher, um, often in many Malaysian schools, goes way beyond just teaching kids ABCs or, or academic knowledge. But uh, sometimes the only positive adult influence uh, in the lives of a child. And so schools serve a much, much, much broader social function beyond just uh, the learning needs of kids. Uh, schools um, provide a place where kids can interact uh, with friends and having healthy relationships, the more and more healthy relationships that you have, um, the more that supports a child's um, development, mental health and well-being, uh, and being taken away out of the school environment just significantly reduces the amount of positive relationships that you may have access to, whether that is your peers or whether that is other adults um, that you may have uh, a positive relationship with. And I think that that then accounts for many other challenges, um, whether it's around the social, uh, emotional uh, needs that a student may have um, that get limited um, through being just stuck at home, other mental health and well-being needs, as well as just some basic uh, safety needs if you are a child that is in an environment where there is domestic violence at home. And so the longer that schools are closed, the more prolonged these challenges um, become and the more difficult it is for families to manage at home and for, for students to be able to uh, to keep up, not just with their learning needs, but um, with a whole host of other social, emotional, mental health needs as well. Yeah. And um, Masliza teaches secondary school students, but this is true for all age groups, right? Primary, secondary. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, Masliza, we've seen the impact that COVID-19 has had on the education sector. I mean, Malaysian schools have remained mostly shut with the exceptions for those taking major examinations, um, national level examinations. Um, and these COVID measures have led to students relying mostly on online learning. But how has the pandemic exacerbated um, or impacted the overall education exper experience for students in these low-income communities? Uh, it's true what Mr. Soon said just now, you know. I mean, school is a lot more than just a place where they go and study because um, more often than not, actually, teachers have become like their counsellors as well. 
you know, it's, we're not like official counselors, not formally, but the students will come up to us and, and um, oh, I don't know, they just, just they've got a lot to tell about their family and, the, you know, why they're not doing well. I've had so many students who are like troubled kids, you know, in school. But when you call them, you know, you just you just call them to your room, just have like a conversation, one-to-one conversation. Even the toughest boy will break down and cry. Seriously, they'll just cry and tell you why they behave like that. So can you imagine being cooped up in a, you know, I mean, like we are fortunate to live in, a, like for me, like a double-story house, you know, where you can move up and down. But if you're cooped up in a small flat with like seven other people, so you can imagine. Just the other day, I received an email from one of my students. It was a, it was a task where they had to write an email to me. And some of them, you know, wrote like what they learned. There was one girl who wrote something that was quite troubling and I was I actually contacted her because she said something like, I hate being at home. I hate my father. So I'm like, oops, you know, something that I just very calmly, I called her and I spoke to her, you know, and I said, I asked her what was wrong. And she just says the father's always scolding her. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it happens, you know. And also, I also have problems with kids working, working as in earning because they have to. Parents are no longer working, so they have to take up the responsibility and most of them become grab riders, foot panda. Uh, yeah. That was also our problem because they leave very early, like 10 o'clock when I say, hey, where are you? Oh, teacher, I have to go out to work. Whereas if they're in school, they have no choice, right? So they go to school. You know, We don't have that much of a problem when they have to work actually during school. It's just this time. You know, yeah. So that, that that's a big problem as well. Huh? And these are problems that are kind of, you know, people like you and me, you were saying that we live in two-story houses where, you know, be, because of the pandemic, mm-hmm. we might have to do everything online, but we don't have to work. And, and yeah, we can they do. Still, yeah, yeah. still actually learn online at home. But for students of low-income families. Yeah, and also some students, they actually enjoy going to school, not to study, okay? But it's just to be with friends, to get out of the house, you know. I had a student from my previous school who, like, would come to school, would just ha- have so much fun in school, wouldn't study. And I spoke to him. He said, teacher, at home, he has to get out of the house. He can't stay in a small flat. And he even sleeps downstairs. So I, I, I thought, downstairs? What do you mean by downstairs? Downstairs meaning the ground floor, you know, the parking area. They push the tables together and they sleep there, you know. Because in their flats, there's no room. Yeah, all this, everybody sleeps outside. So there's like when he wants some private space, he'll just sleep downstairs in the basement, whatever, you know. She's very sad. Right, so school was always like a refuge for, for these children. Yes, right? definitely, yeah. All right, um, Sun Seng, there's been a lot of talk of getting government aid to support students in need during this pandemic. Um, and I'll list a few initiatives. Uh, for example, in the national budget 2021, the government promised to deliver 150,000 laptops to students in need. Um, but there have been reports that as of June, an estimated 9% have actually been delivered. Um, in the Pamule Stimulus Plan, uh, the Prime Minister, Tan Sri Mohidin Yassin, announced the extension of free one gigabytes of daily data for existing subscribers um, of the five major telco companies until the end of the year. Then there's also My Digital, which seems to be part of a broader, uh, not really COVID-specific plan with a timeline of 2021 to 2025. And this aims to narrow the digital divide by providing equipment and data to students in need. So I guess, like, what's your view on these policies, um, the, the main gaps, perhaps, in your view? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the reality now is that it's it's unrealistic to expect that the digital divide is going to be closed in the short term. We're not going to be able to close it um, within within the span of the year. We're not going to be able to get enough laptops or devices out to kids or build the infrastructure necessary to ensure that there is connectivity um, for every kid across the country. And I think that um, there needs to be more done to support safe reopening of schools, as well as other offline solutions um, for, for students to have access to learning during this period of time. But I think just thinking about a longer term picture, I think that what's going to be important is for us to, to keep our sights on closing the digital divide in the long term. And the government has announced that the Churdik program, which is supposed to roll 150,000 laptops out this year, that's supposed to be a pilot program, meaning that based on the learnings uh, from, from this program that's then supposed to be extended um, to eventually ensure that kids get access to a device um, and that digital learning is something that is uh, a long-term thing that is embedded into the education system. So it's going to be important that the government continues to keep committed to those things even once the immediate demands of the pandemic are no longer in place, let's say a year down the road, it's going to take multiple years for us to reach that stage. So I think that's a key thing to continue to invest in this even beyond uh, the immediate effects uh, of the pandemic. I think that some of the provisions are helpful, for example, um, the one gigabyte of daily data. But, you know, we know that a single video conference call could take up to one gigabyte of data. And like what Maslisa was sharing is that schools are supposed to work on a timetable that take you multiple hours across the day. And if you're expecting students to connect for that entire period of time, uh, then that's that's not likely going to help significant um, if, you, if you're trying to help students have a full experience of full school learning timetable. Then I think that to Maslisa's point, um, the biggest thing that is impacted at this point in time is, is loss of income. And so if we can't get parents back onto jobs as quickly as possible, all of the, the challenges that surround it will continue uh, to remain. So we can't just look at uh, government intervention just at the student level or at the, at the learning level. It, it needs to be a holistic look at it. Um, but I think the, the key thing is really thinking about supporting students' offline learning during this period of time. And what Masliza was describing, many schools have now started operating on the basis where they create modules for to be sent to students. And typically, parents can come to schools and pick those things up. But what we've seen, or some of our teachers have seen, is that especially in areas where there are lockdowns, it may be even difficult for parents to come to school and pick those up. And so out of their own cost, uh, we've seen teachers use delivery services and will send these packets or these modules one by one um, to the students, uh, to the students' homes. That can be an extremely expensive thing to do on a sustained basis. And thinking about alternative ways um, to use the existing resource that is available, existing logistics and supply chains, or even just giving permissions for teachers to be able to 
distribute, obviously in a safe way where possible. Ultimately, UNICEF and, and UNESCO released a statement saying that you know schools need to be considered as a top priority. And their statement was that schools should be the last to close and the first to reopen in times of a pandemic. And that governments need to invest in ways to ensure that schools are the essential services, right? Yeah, when school reopened the first time round, yeah, after the first MCO, we also had problems um, whereby parents were very worried to send their kids, you know, and so the attendance rate was really poor as well, despite the very strict SOP that we followed and we, you know, make sure the students followed. Uh, and also because of the SOPs as well, students were not enjoying school so much. They were not allowed to go out and play. They were not allowed to even go to the school canteen for the break. Everything was in class. And after a while, they just got fed up. <laughs> so they didn't want to come to school, you know. And then, of course, there were lots of parents. Just, they were, and we couldn't take any action. No, no. usually, you know, if the students don't turn up for three days in a row, we issue letters and all that. But during the pandemic, nothing was issued because we understood. But, yeah, that was our problem as well, you know. Parents were very scared to send the kids, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. This is another piece around like, how do we provide? And I'm I'm very cognizant that we have a we have a teacher in this uh, in this um, call, right? So um, cognizant of not suggesting things that are going to add more to the crazy uh, workload at this time that teachers experience, right? Um, but how do we provide options? that could make, for example, hybrid schooling work, right? So, for example, options where parents who are afraid to send their kids to school during this time could, and let's say you have you have children at home, maybe your family is in a position where they can learn effectively from home because there are families um, that do have the relevant uh, equipment or environment. So can those families stay at home and uh, learn from home? And that would also reduce the number of students overall in school um, so that you can more effectively allow for, for physical distancing in school. So uh, I think that when the, the challenge with Malaysia's reopening is that we haven't had enough modes to tackle uh, the reopening. And typically what's happened is that we've, you know, we opened the examination years and then eventually we just bring everybody back in. Um, but when we bring everybody back in, you don't create enough space in certain schools, um, especially overcrowded schools, for physical distancing to happen. That's when uh, you see the SOPs begin to fall apart. I, I think Masliza is absolutely right in that, you know, even once schools reopen, students with all of the restrictions and the SOPs, it's a very restrictive uh, schooling experience and students don't prefer that. But you will still see in the overall, more students will be accessing learning if, if we're able to reopen schools. I, I want to come back to, sorry, were you going to say something? I mean, um, we also have problems with connectivity in schools. Not all schools are equipped with strong Wi-Fi and so forth. So even yeah. for the teachers to come back to school and then do online classes with the, say, for example, like half the class is, um, comes to school, the other half will stay at home, right? As you suggested. But for the teachers to do that in school, so it's also very, it's going to be very tough as well. Right. And I want to come back to talk about the reopening of schools shortly, but I wanted to circle back to something you said earlier, Sun saying, which is that it's hard to tackle all of these digital divide issues in the short term. So to follow up on that, do you think these measures like the 150,000 free laptops 
um, have legs as long-term solutions that are sustainable beyond the pandemic? Yeah, and I mean, I think that that's, that's why it's going to be important for us to continue to advocate for bridging the digital connectivity divide uh, in the long term. I mean, I think that the government's stated intent has been that, for example, the Chertic program, the laptop, the device program for students is something that they want to extend um, and uh, eventually uh, will be something that does roll out uh, for all students. And the aim in the long term is that, you know, we, we reach a situation where all students have access to a device in school. And the question is, whether we will have the political will um, to sustain that in the long term, because we understand sort of how things shift with the political tide. And so I think that as the public, that's something that we need to continue to advocate for. I think that what's what's been helpful to see is that, you know, there have been a series of delays with the rollout of these laptops. And for, for many, many, many reasons, whether that's the global shortage on, on devices, whether that's the logistical bureaucratic challenges of rolling out devices through the MOE. Um, but what's been helpful to see is, is how vocal the public has been in demanding that these laptops reach students sooner. And I think that if we can continue to maintain that level of public accountability in the long term, then that would be something that's going to be important for us to actually really tide that over. Right. Um, now, Mazliza, we're talking about different forms of public aid, such as, you know, free one gigabytes of data, um, free laptops. But did your school receive any public aid from the government for students' online learning? No, but I did tell my students to look up the websites for this diff different telcos. They offered like this package deal, but some of my students got back to me and said it was only eligible for those uh, household income less than 300 or something like that, which is ridiculous. So they couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't access that either. So I, I think also telcos should play a role here, yeah, and offer, you know, offer good deals, affordable deals for, for students, yeah. But in terms of um, the government, we haven't received anything. Yeah, we did receive some tablets, but it was given by a private company. Um, so there's really no avenue for you to appeal to, you know, a sort of channel uh, money for students or anything like that. It's mostly relying on on private donations and such, you're saying? Yes, yes. We do have allocation by the government, but all these years, the money, the, the budget, the money that comes to schools um, were used to buy books. You know, we only could buy concrete things like that for the students, but you know, being at home now, books are not quite the thing people use these days. And then, you know, typical of any procedure in the government, how it works, we have to get like three quotations and this and that, all that. So that is a bit difficult. So there is money, you know, in the school account, but we can't use it for just anything. That's a problem. And unfortunately, buying credit data and all that doesn't come under the list of things you can use the money for. So... It's still there. We just have to wait for the school to reopen and then the teachers can start using that to like print materials and so forth. But that's it. Right. And the reason I wanted to speak with you is because um, it came to a point where your family took matters into your own hands, right? Your, your own children basically fundraised for your students to get access to online learning. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that effort? Oh, okay. Yeah. Because I come back with all sorts of sob stories, you see, sob, sob stories. 
<laughs> so my my children empathized with the kids. So they asked how they could help, and I said, the problem now is is buying, you know, topping up credit. I've been buying for them and all that. So my kids rallied and got their friends to uh, donate some money, and so I've been using that actually. So I've got a list of students who I made them fill up a form. I, I did a survey who can afford and who didn't help. And then, so I have now I have most of them about, I'm helping about 50 kids at the moment, yeah. So like every week, I'll just pop up data for them. Um, I don't have enough money to buy them gadgets, you know, so the least we could do. But some parents have, you know, called and thanked me. So you know, that means, you know, they really needed their help. And um, while students have been staying at home, you mentioned that books are maybe not quite the most useful thing, but uh, the Malaysian government has also brought back school lessons on TV. Have you or your students found this helpful? Again, it's the problem of um, uh, sharing, yeah? Because these programs are shown, if like simultaneous or whatever, and then you have kids of different age group in the household but there's some good programs actually i have come across some so we have a list of those programs sent to us so we will forward the programs uh, the schedules and all that to the students and then many teachers i think yeah they have been using that as well and then for our follow-up lesson the students get to talk and discuss that that has been quite good actually but again you know how many tvs are there in one house you know for some people right yeah and um, so I wanted to go back to the reopening of schools. I mean, everything that we have talked about so far, uh, the digital divide is going to remain an issue as long as schools are closed for the pandemic. And the government recently announced that schools are likely to reopen in stages after September 1st, taking into account the current vaccination rates. Um, it's the 21st of July today, so that's more than a month away from now. Until then, these inequities of online learning are going to be an issue that's going to continue to disproportionately affect low-income students. So what kind of short-term solutions do you think the government should undertake until schools start to reopen? Oh, I don't know. Too short a, t- too short a period to, to, you know, for them to do anything, actually. But um, if only they would just relax a little bit on the on how we can use the money that is given to us for schools. But and other than that, I don't see anything can be done within this month, actually. Yeah, I really agree with that. I think the key thing at this point in time, if you were going to make any significant differences, is how are we resourcing teachers, knowing that teachers are the ones who are closest to the challenges and to the needs of their students. How do we resource teachers, decentralize some of the decision making and allow teachers to just have the resources that they need to address um, their students' needs? resourcing teachers at this point in time, I think can be the most, one of the most powerful things that can be done um, to really, really make a difference in, in the short term. Um, Ms. Lisa, so after schools start to reopen, right, what kind of initiatives, um, I mean, do you have a wish list for what kind of initiatives you'd like to see for the students? Um, well, I think uh, we should open up schools and we should have staggered in the sense that like, this week, this group of students next week, you know, so at least they do come at least two weeks in a, a month, you know, that's that's better than nothing, right? At least they has, there's like physical contact with the teachers. And during that two weeks, you go all out and teach them and then two weeks is like online class, yeah. But other than that, no, because um, we cannot, we can't loosen the SOP. So that's a big problem. We can't, you know, they still have to follow. If anything were to happen, 
if there's a school cluster, it'll get back to us, you see. Right. And I also wonder if you have any thoughts about how, you know, people have been talking about these students as a kind of like so-called lost generation because they've missed out on so many years of crucial education. So once we do go back to normal, uh, for lack of a better word, how do we make up for, for those years? Hmm, how do we make up for those years? Oh my God, I don't know how we make up for those years. Huh? Um, how do we make up for them? It's, they just have to, they just have, they, the students themselves, they just have to want to do it. You know, there's nothing much we can do on our part because if they've missed out a lot, it's their own, it's their own responsibility really, right? I really don't know. I don't have an answer to that question. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure there really is an answer. Um, Soon Singh, do you do you have any any insights? I don't know if you've had any discussions around this, um, because you know this loss of opportunity can compound, and in that's a more severe effect on people of low income families. So, do you have any thoughts on how students and families can make up for these years? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is it is a challenging thing, right? At, um, to to think about. Number one, what the loss is even going to be, and then how do you even address that, right? And so the World Bank is estimating something like a $10 trillion lifetime loss uh, for the students who have been affected by the pandemic, right? And so I think that there are certain aspects that, you know, are just non-negotiable, right? Like basic literacies. So can you read and write? Can you do basic math? Those are things that, you know, there's going to be an obvious loss and that you have to make up for. But I think when we think about what learning looks like during this time, it's going to be unrealistic to expect students to come back from this time and expect them to to 100% be able to catch up to the curriculum. And so, you know, I think that to have to place that expectation on students, and you see this, um, especially with the students sitting for SBM, how much pressure they experience uh, at this point in time, um, because of the expectation that, you know, that they need to like cram or catch up for all of the lost uh, time. It's not going to be realistic for that to happen. And it's going to be even more difficult for the students who are sitting for SPM this year because they've spent even more time out of school, right? So it's going to be unrealistic, I think, for us to expect that all students are going to be able to catch up. And I really do think that one thing that we can look into is how do we actually redefine uh, the expected curriculum outcomes uh, for students during this period of time. And uh, there needs to be a relaxing of some of the curriculum expectations. Definitely. Definitely. Just throw away, you know, some subjects for that matter. Seriously, like concentrate on the basic ones that they need to survive. Like you, there's some, I think, ridiculous um, subjects that they can do without for the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And also the syllabus cut down. They should really look into the syllabus um, uh, of the education system in other countries, you know? Yes, yeah, so I mean, Malaysia already has a very overloaded curriculum. And we can identify, to Masalisa's point, like, for example, in the Finnish system, there are very, very few uh, requirements, curriculum requirements at a national level. Um, and then it's up to the schools to be able to determine, okay, what's going to make the most sense for, for our students. And I think really thinking about how we strip the curriculum down to the core for this period of time, empower schools and teachers to be able to support their students um, based on, on, on their needs because they will be the ones, the teachers especially, 
especially will be the ones who will know where their students are at and really strip down to the core. I think that, so first, I think like curriculum relaxation. I think a second thing, the... The UK is investing over a billion pounds in a tutoring scheme, which basically allows schools to have access to tutors or to tutoring services for their students. And it's a recognition that it's not going to be realistic uh, to expect teachers to meet the needs of all of their students at this point in time. And teachers will need additional support during this time to, to make up for that difference. Are they qualified tutors? Yeah, so what they're doing in the UK is they're basically working with tutoring services, but typically these tutors, they obviously provide tutoring for kids who can afford. And so what they do is they provide subsidies to schools for them to be able to pay for their students to have access to uh, tutoring, or they also have a scheme where they send trained tutors to schools to then, let's say if you have a group of students in your class who may need more basic literacy remedial support, then they can pull them out of the teacher's class and provide that direct support um, while the teacher is then able to teach the rest of the class according to um, the level that uh, the rest of the class is at. I think that's um, what the minister announced the other day, the education minister, he said something about people can start applying for this teaching job, even without an education degree. So anyone with a basic degree can apply nowadays. So I think that's almost like that, where they're just getting as many people, you know, to join the teaching forces as possible. Yeah. So they're currently trying to make up for an apparent teacher shortage of 18,000 teachers. I think that if, if done well, that can be effective. Um, what will be really, really important is to prioritize the training and support that this batch of teachers receives before and while they're in school, because none of these people would have been trained specifically for um, the pandemic. And they also wouldn't have been trained to also meet the needs of, of the different uh, of students coming out of the pandemic. And so just, you know, putting these teachers in school without the relevant training would poses a challenge. And so I think it can be helpful that we're going to get all of this additional manpower in, um, but ensuring that they have the training and support. So for, for students learning, I think relaxation of uh, the curriculum, ensuring that we have enough teachers and potentially additional um, uh, support for students uh, at, this, uh, at this point in time, above and beyond um, the teaching force. And then I think the third thing is really like, how do we support and equip teachers uh, during this time, right? There's going to be so many challenges that come out of uh, pandemic, especially when kids return to school. Do teachers have access to the training and the resources that they're going to need to be able to meet the needs of students that we, and, and we're not going to be able to predict them all uh, at this point, right? And so how do we continuously support teachers, whether that's through resource, whether that's through training, uh, to be able to make up um, for all of the challenges that we're going to experience once schools do reopen. Right. And um, Masisa, I have one final question, and that is what can people listening in um, do to help students? Oh, wow. Um, volunteer, I suppose. If we have volunteers to teach, that would be wonderful as well, you know? So the thing is, it's always, it always comes back to money, whatever it is, you know, and the government doesn't have enough to go around giving. So we have volunteers among the parents, you know, that would be great as well. There might be some parents who have teaching experience and all that. And also, um, at the moment, it's just that we need money. We need money, that's all, you know, to help. If we have to buy gadgets for the students, we have to top up data for them, we have to 
provide other materials all comes boils down to having extra money <laughs> yeah well that's all the time we have today um, thank you so much to Masliza and Sun Singh for joining us on this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches next week be sure to tune in to New Narrative's political agenda New Narrative's podcast series on current affairs in Singapore this is Diana wishing all our listeners a great week ahead jumpa lagi